0: Hello and welcome to Square Hole, I'm your host Sazie Clivetcher. For our creators Lorna and Januk, this podcast has been a labour of love through researching, exposing personal experiences and showcasing different views on neurodiversity. As an art director slash photographer and illustrator slash educator, Lorna and Januk unveil their own perspectives on how neurodiverse traits are attributed to their creative careers. In these combined episodes, they listen back and reflect on points throughout the interviews that have directly affected their learning on neurodiversity, particularly in their own creative processes, as well as its impact on the industry at large. In this episode, Lorna and Janook consider the tension between neurotypical and neurodiverse creatives working together. They respond to creative industry employers and their perspectives on supporting neurodiverse employees. How can neurodiversity change mindsets? What are employers looking for when hiring a creative? And what do we really mean when we look to create a diverse creative team?
1: Hi, Lona. Hi, Januk. So in this episode, we are looking at employers' perspectives and working in a neurodiverse team and changing mindsets around the hiring process. So would you like to introduce our first guest?
2: I definitely would. I'm really excited, actually, to introduce Ruth Ellen Dankwa from Exceptional Individuals. She talked with Zaz about Exceptional Individuals and her work there as a consultant. And if you don't know what Exceptional Individuals is, it's a recruitment agency that specialises in getting neurodiverse people work.
3: I have a tendency to kind of rabbit it on and I've had to learn over like going to like things like Toastmasters and other personal development things, how to kind of hold my tongue and to articulate myself in a way, in a professional manner and to put a certain voice on because I'm from Southeast London. And so I've definitely felt that there has been some masking in the past more than anything. There are some amazing companies working with us that are doing the work, right? But the reality of the fact is there could always be more. And so we shouldn't be necessarily patting them on the back saying well done for taking the sleep because some people still believe that, you know, it's the right thing to do and that's all, but there is a clear return on investment for doing it as well. So if we're talking from a business perspective, the work that people are doing in these spaces are helping everyone to thrive, not just the people that are neurodivergent. I think it's about those reasonable adjustments, about best practice. It's about knowing that not everyone shows their interview skills in their best light. And so giving people different options to go for vacancies, right? And changing the language within our job description. So it's not about things that we don't need, not some throwaway terms that just look good in the job description. And also looking at not just the general, hey, these are the people that we know in our circle. It's more so like, widening the net and making these vacancies available to people that people wouldn't give, unfortunately, a second look to.
2: So those things that Ruth Allen are talking about require a lot of effort on employers' facts, but that goes to like people saying these things and actually doing those things, because having a diverse hiring process does put a lot more onto the employers like they need to make more effort to find those people that are not in their normal channels and that diversifies their pool of workers.
1: Yeah I couldn't agree more having the effort made by employers a bit more in terms of finding different platforms to advertise their job vacancies on maybe not their go-to or traditional places just because that's where everyone posts their jobs in the creative sector like be a bit more creative with your hiring process as well and then you might get a creative and more diverse team maybe we commented on this in a previous episode but that whole underpinning of well certainly in the uk around the law and the equality act actually if that's highlighted a lot more often in a lot more different spaces like in education and in workplaces then people would know their rights more and employers would know what they needed to do a little bit more to actually abide by the law
3: it's also about the person believing in themselves i remember coaching a particular candidate and amazing guy fantastic at what he did but being able to articulate that and advocate for himself that was the challenge so coaching him through understanding the way he speaks to himself impacts the way he views the world and how he's able to interact with others and then when he went through the whole coaching process he didn't even finish it but he still got the job because he was able to have the ability to articulate himself and his worth his actual worth like no job can give you your worth but he was able to articulate this is what I bring this is why it's important this is how I do it without the anxiety without the doubts creeping in because he had the different level of belief in himself and he said he never felt so accepted before he went into our space and before he had the coaching his feedback was i felt so accepted and seen and heard so that's why we do what we do we we want people to feel like they belong because they do
1: i think that's so i'm a little bit emotional hearing that but i think that's so great to hear those words i felt like i was accepted because i think as people as human beings you have hopefully if you're privileged enough you have people around you say family or friends that you feel accepted around not everyone does and those with that privilege have that that we spend a lot of our time in the workplace don't we and it should be a really essential thing that you feel accepted by the people around you whilst you work because if you don't have that in the workspace, that's a lot of your life, being surrounded by people that don't accept you.
2: Yeah, that's a huge thing. And again, exhausting and again, masking. And it's not really owning who you are or accepting who you are. And it's quite a difficult thing to do to have this self-worth because you can go through life and there's lots of things can knock you. But it's amazing to have like a company like Exceptional Individuals that can have this coaching available to help these individuals to like recognize that self-worth to identify what that is like that is a really amazing opportunity to work with someone to bring those things out because everybody has that potential
1: yeah and about exploring what that is that self-worth and how to articulate it in an interview situation or to a potential employee or a colleague that's really special to have that space
3: one of my bosses back in the day was amazing at doing that. Didn't know that I was new at because I only found that when I was in my thirties. But having the space to see somebody and say, actually, I see you, I'm going to give you the resources you need to shine. What, you want to work from home? Done. You want to get somebody to help you with this? Done. It was almost like I couldn't ask for any more. And that's what every employer should be doing for every single employee. They shouldn't be thinking, you need a label in order to get the help, because we should be delabeling people. I truly believe that labels for jars are not for people. There's great return on investment from having a diverse team, the bottom line. i have able to be in a room with people and still feel like I'm learning something, right? If you're in spaces where you're not feeling challenged, you're not, feeling, not getting enlightenment, you're in spaces that are two same-same. And if you're in those same, same spaces, then what are you really doing? This is about what's that next level for you? And if you're always on that same level, you're coasting. You know you are, and you've got a team that's coasting and you're happy with that. Most of the time, the biggest takeaway people are getting is that space and reflection that's not judgmental to be able to really talk. Because oftentimes they are the wisest people in the room, but they're not listening to themselves because somebody's put in their head that they're not the wisest person. And so they're sitting there, listening to other people, tell them about how their life isn't as great as it should be. And then they're starting to buy into it. And so I give them the space to be able to to remember who they are more than anything. That's probably the most powerful gift I can give them, to remember who they are. Your self-concept is just not strong. So it makes you doubt yourself, makes you believe other people above yourself, makes you think that your work's not good enough, makes you feel like you're not good enough. And so it just goes round and round. And this is a generation of breaking cycles. And so understanding how to break those cycles and what that looks like for you is important. And doing the undoing is important.
2: I mean, that kind of ties back in with the whole self-worth thing that we are just talking about, like these cycles of perpetuating issues around feeling Not good enough, not accepted, not where you're supposed to be, like self-doubt. Maybe you can help me on this as well. Like When we're creative, we inherently have a lot of those things in us anyway because it's such a personal thing that we're doing being creative. So it's a problem, like your self-worth, and this doubt, and it can really disable you in your creative process.
1: There's something really key in the words unlearning there that I really identify with about... Things that you have perhaps learned along your journey of growing as a person that you get to a point and have to feel like you can feel comfortable in being critical of those learnings because maybe they don't work for you and the way that you process things and can be creative and can be confident and can have that self-worth and less self-doubt. <laughs> I think there's a point that we need to be able to reach where we can be critical of that learning and unlearn it and find new ways that work for us better
3: the fact that i know people in the creative industry that are going from project to project wondering if that's going to be their last meal type thing and that is so stressful and therefore it's almost like the way the system's set up it's like the general way the, the employment is set up is like the creative sector really rides on these contracts these one-off things and and obviously you do a good job you're going to get more but the gaps in between them are huge and because you're working in different teams as well there's going to be some maybe conflict management challenges coming up of how you do things and so learning how to articulate yourself in a way that you feel seen and heard um, and repeating that until you do feel seen and heard is probably key as well but I definitely feel there should be some better frameworks for people in terms of even when they're self-employed, like tax thing and helping them with those elements of the world. Because I think those ones are huge barriers to people's sustainability and getting the right support system in place for that
2: as well is key.
1: I mean, Lorna, we've both been freelance, but I feel like you've got a lot to draw on with this.
2: There's quite a few points there, acknowledging how stressful freelance can be, in particularly how stressful it has been in these last two years. The precarity of it, and the sort of missing of the structure, perhaps not having this like support network that is constantly you can come back to and have your back, because you're kind of like out there on your own. I've never given this to myself, actually, like it's difficult to go into a new team every time you go to work and like try and work with them. That's a difficult thing. And that is energy again and try and articulate how you want something to be done. Sometimes it makes you feel that you have to take more on again because you feel like it's easier just to communicate with yourself to get the things done instead of like. The energy that it would take to communicate with someone else in the team. Really go back to that other episode talking about elastic these boundaries and-, and keeping them elasticated so that you can like give more thinking that making it better for yourself. But you're actually just adding to your workload a lot.
1: Yeah. And it's also because as a freelancer, like Ruth said, you want to be seen to be good so that they'll hire you again if you're a freelance person so those elasticated boundaries become more important or feel like they're more important to do even though they're adding quite a lot of stress on the neurodivergent creative to do
2: yeah and we're in a very highly competitive highly competitive now industry so you're constantly trying to see how you can deliver and actually it could be seen you know if you have certain needs As a freelancer, maybe that's the thing for an employer be like, oh, well, you know, maybe again, what Lily was saying, like, are those, do they need too much for me? Is it too difficult to work with that person because they have some requirements, but they need to see the merit of the diverse hire and and, and look at the work. It's the work at the end of the day. You
3: can implement your own processes that work best for you. That's level of flexibility the ability to come into work at different times and leave at different times because of the transport system and the way that it's overwhelming all those things those minimal things that don't cost you anything are really helpful and impactful and make massive changes one of the things that i'm introducing more of into the processes that i help clients are performance aids things that help them to do their job more effectively. These are really simple things like if they're having a team meeting and they're not even sure who's gonna be on their team for projects, having that one sheet with all the team members on there, their contact details, their actual preferences of communication. All of those things on one page is so helpful for people that have challenges looking for 20 different things because of the 20 different systems people are using that aren't centralized. So again, it's making people's lives easier and, working with organisations, not against them, but hopefully they want to work with rather than not against because it's so stressful to implement changes in your everyday work, right? You get access to work or you just get workplace adjustments. You're going to have to change the way you do things, right? And that's a feat in itself. Change management has so much resistance to it, but it's not necessarily the person who is getting that workplace needs assessment at needs to change it's the culture
2: That was a very emotional interview for me that one was and i had a little cry i think after it
1: <laughs> yeah following on from ruth's interview i think it's a really nice way to segue into our next interviewee who is Sapora johnston who is an artist and founder of a creative collective called nuke collective based in scotland
4: I'm autistic and dyspraxic, but I was actually only diagnosed in my thirties. And it's not that they didn't realize that there was something weird about me, but I don't think that like my school or my family or even doctors had like a conceptual category of autism when it came to girls. I got plenty of other diagnoses, depression, generalized anxiety disorder. And my life was like this sort of cycle of like breakdowns and burnout and just years spent feeling like an alien dropped off on earth without a guidebook so getting the autism diagnosis in particular was kind of like getting the key to my brain and realizing oh I'm not a defective neurotypical I'm a perfectly fine neurodivergent person for me it's kind of weird because I have a cousin my mother's brother's son who is almost exactly the same age as me we're like a year apart and he was diagnosed as a child because he absolutely presented classically, as you imagine, like a, a boy with autism, you know, that when people think about autism, they think mostly about a white boy, don't they? And, you know, he was wild at school and questioning authority and quite like demand avoidant and things in a way that like, I was socialized not to be mm-hmm. as, as a, a girl, like just the expectations for me were, were really different. I was quiet and studious, I think there is as well something about, does the child disrupt the class? Yes. Okay, diagnostic pathway. No, the child might be suffering, but as long as they're not causing problems, then there was a feeling like, oh, well, you know, just everything, everything's fine. You know, it's not causing us any issues.
1: I just really love the way that Sapora talked about getting that diagnosis, even though much later in life was the key to her brain in understanding how, She operates, and I really relate to that experience, not because I wasn't operating in the world or making decisions or doing work that I wanted to do, but it was just that I noticed the way that I was doing it didn't match the way that people were doing it around me were doing it. And yeah, I just think that that's really a great way to promote the benefits of getting a diagnosis for someone individually, and something that might help people to decide whether to get one or not. Some people might decide they don't need that.
2: True. But I think a lot of things we're talking about is like uh, the benefits of it is knowing yourself and I think in Sephora's situation, again I love the visual of this kind of like missing puzzle piece like locking and coming together and opening up. Obviously makes you feel really sad doesn't it? To think about all this sort of misdiagnosis that she had to like live with and I think it was amazing to see that she eventually, even in her Thirties started to understand who she was, and she could become her whole whole person, access all of her, and have this full understanding of who she is,
1: and be confident in it. Yeah, I think part of uh, running Spawn is
4: I just I hear so many experiences of women of like all ages, all backgrounds, and you know, we have people who are just 16 who are coming out of high school. And then we have people who are in their 60s who are now being like, oh, you know, I think actually this would explain the pattern of my life. It's really striking the commonality of the experiences of this late diagnosed, these, these late diagnosed women. Like you, you just realize how many of the issues are systemic. You're know, Meeting after meeting is women coming with these just appalling experiences at work. And being bullied and ostracized and refused reasonable adjustments and this cycle of burnout is like a really common one as well and getting that diagnosis is, is like such a transformative experience because you're allowed to think about yourself differently and i think it's quite isolating as well when you don't have a diagnosis i know a lot of people are kind of like oh there's too many people being diagnosed these days and mm. what's the point of diagnosing your 30 know, year old women and it's like because it, it allows you firstly this manual to yourself but also a peer group you're like oh my god that's me as well and that's my experience and be able to share that it's like so important. The way that the arts are organised is that you are in this constant cycle of applications always like looking for the next tiny pot of money. And so if you are having to do like an application a month, you can imagine like the the huge chunk of, of your time that is taken out.
2: I think I will let Januk talk a bit more about this because she is very well versed in, in arts applications. Thanks, Lona.
1: I wish I wasn't as well versed in this, but it is how again the creative industry is driven for artists looking at their own practices and how to develop them and if you're neurodivergent and you're trying to apply for all of these amazing opportunities and funds out there having to face that written application form again, or that online system where you have to register and create your own account profile, wait for the verification email, put together a budget. I mean like my mum was a maths teacher and we always used to laugh about how maths can be maths in action, you know, like there's practical uses for maths, but this is beyond my creativity levels.
2: Yeah, and also what Sapora says, like the amount of hours that has she has to put in extra. Yeah. massively puts her on a back foot. Yeah, it's just not possible to keep going because when you think about money and you can only give a certain amount, it's such a huge disadvantage how, that, yeah, the way that industry, the industry is set up for this one type of person to have that time to like apply
1: yeah again down to privilege but also I feel like there's a real mismatch between commercial and non-commercial creative practices as well because like in some respects some of the commercial processes offer that pitch money and that's time that you develop an idea sometimes not all the time <laughs> yeah I know you're shaking your head at me but not all the time but they're has been known to be some clients or some commercial organizations that offer that money because they recognize that that's time to develop an idea and pitch it. But in non-commercial entities of the creative industry, you have to put the hours in without being paid, which seems really outrageous.
2: We also probably should acknowledge that there are some support for funding applications at different places. There are. It's not like they don't exist, but... They're just not consistent. They're not consistent, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even know about them until I started doing the podcast either. So where are they advertised? Who are they advertised for? And how much How much can you get?
4: It's always that this is a golden moment because we're being forced to remake the industry to some extent after COVID. And I think we won't go back to that time where... You know, as long as we have the Tories and government, certainly we won't go back to that time where people were given the support and space. The industry is being remade. There are things that could be built in to mitigate some of the effects of that. Like, I just, I don't want to see us going back to the status quo because it, it just wasn't working.
2: Yeah, I think this is a new point in time about a new time to break this mould the opportunity is there to like change these systems and to build these structures differently to incorporate inclusivity.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting is the opportunity has perhaps always been there to develop changes to those systems. But like Sipporah mentioned, COVID has brought together this golden time where we've been forced to reevaluate that and adapt and recreate, redesign. And actually we won't go back on certain things now which well, we is hope. exciting. <laughs> if you're an organisation like interested in working with neurodivergent
4: artists, which should be all organisations, and like, okay, you know, how do I support them? Then you need more than like the aspirations or demands of the manifesto. You need like detail, you're kind of asking, okay, so what? how do I make a meeting more friendly for neurodivergent people? Or, you know, how, how do I organise my events so that they're accessible for neurodivergent people? And yeah, no, I, think, I think there is curiosity and good intentions out there. It's just mm-hmm. that like people don't necessarily know what they can do. I do take an absurd amount of time on my application. And then there's also the issue of like, I don't even know if I'm doing them right because they're written from quite a neurotypical perspective. So sometimes I realise that actually I've not understood the question because they think they're being helpful by writing a really open-ended question. But that, for me, as an autistic person, is actually really difficult to interpret because there's all this stuff that you're just supposed to read between the lines that and I'm like, no, no, no I, I actually would do better if you asked me very precise, targeted question <laughs> or just said, you know, give us a plan of exactly what you want to do. You know, that's, again, one of those areas where, like, there's goodwill. People think they're being helpful. They're like, oh, well, will just give them space to talk about whatever they want to talk about. But actually, for me, that's like, oh, my God, <laughs> what, what is this asking me? You're kind of constantly monitoring yourself and others Mm. in this kind of conscious feedback loop of am I making the right facial expression now? Am I holding my hands right? Am I like making an approximation of eye contact? What does that expression on their face mean? Are they angry? Are they like that amount of cognitive activity? it, It takes its toll constantly. Having that background track on while you're actually trying to do the job. You should offer people the opportunity to provide their access statement if that would help them. It should not be a requirement. A it Yeah, and it should absolutely not be a screening tool. Thank you very much.
1: There's a lot in there, what Sapporo is saying about offering opportunities for potential employees or existing employees to explain what their access requirements are without having to disclose every single bit of personal identity or information about their conditions it's about reasonable adjustments in the workplace for them to be able to be creative or do their job to the best of their abilities not scrutinizing their condition and where like we were saying before in other episodes a deficit it's not about deficit it's about difference and how to work with that in a positive way to sort of bring out new ways of working and exciting, game-changing things that could really change the industry. And if you were the employer to support that in one of your creative employees, and that ended up being something that was essential to the way that the creative industry changed, that would be so amazing, (laughs) I think. Yeah, it would be exciting, (laughs) you'd think.
2: Yeah. But um, I don't know, I'm just thinking... A little bit now, and the other side, like in roles, are quite time starved, yeah. And putting it on those other individuals to do the research, maybe there's needs to be more responsibility on the organisation as a whole to help support those who are neurotypical who are trying to like understand neurodiverse creatives and their communication between each other.
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's like a journey together. It's not like I'm going to hire a diverse creative team because they need to give everything about the way that they work to benefit us it's like how can we work together to benefit the creative industry or our ideas collectively or what can we learn from each other and what do i need to learn more about because that's an untapped area that i don't know enough about Yeah, so it was great to hear about Sephora's practice and about Newt Collective and what their manifesto and ethos is, especially to do with employment and employers. And I think it follows on nicely with the next interviewer.
2: So we were really lucky to catch Fraser Butteridge, and we talked a lot about his design practice and some things around his hiring process as a studio owner.
5: I wouldn't know if I'm dyslexic or not, I suppose, you know, it's something that maybe I should pursue, because maybe it is important that I should know these things. I suppose there's now, well not now, but there's increasingly moves for legibility, for accessibility on the websites we do, there's kind of strict guidelines, and I often question those, and I suppose if I knew what my status was, then I could have some basis for either questioning them or rejecting them or acting on them. So. I suppose I'm, I'm in kind of limbo land a little bit.
1: I think that this is something that perhaps hasn't come up so dominantly yet, Lorna, and I was really glad that Fraser raised this. It's like the practicalities of some of the accessibility that we can be using in our creative design processes, like looking at typefaces, that they have been traditionally looked at a lot and more focused on than the other things that we've spoken about. But what's interesting in what Fraser says here is that he's also considering his position on this, like because he doesn't know, he's never had the diagnosis of whether he is neurotypical or neurodiverse. If he did have that, it might give him some clarity on his position, his perspective on things design aspect wise around accessibility. And I think that's quite exciting to think about and maybe another reason why you might get diagnosed as a creative person.
2: Yeah, I think it shows that he's got that curiosity to like enhance his practice in a way, looking to explore the ways of having better knowledge for himself around those accessibility points and traits and things like that, that he, he, he works with all the time.
5: I don't expect someone that comes to work here to actually know what they're doing, which is quite sad considering they've done a four year course. I just expect to be able to see something that would enable them to know what they're doing. I definitely have never employed anyone that is a, a finished designer because I think when you come out of university, you're not, and it's about realising that you're not. The world of graphics, and especially in a small studio, can be quite brutal. And you know, I often say to potential employees, you know, we're going to kind of throw you in, and not throw you in at the deep end, but you know, we're a small studio, so it's up to you to make it what it is. And I suppose if someone does have some form of condition, then that's going to be a lot harder potentially. So I suppose being aware of that would enable me to be much more sensitive towards that. Whereas if I wasn't aware of that, then I'd be much more kind of in the dark. So I think it it would be super helpful.
2: Taking what Fraser just said there, in conjunction with what Sapporo was saying, previously around disclosure at, at your discretion but it's really nice to hear it from like an employer's mouth <laughs> and saying that they would find it helpful that sort of like reassures me that somebody in such a studio as in Fraser's would be willing to accommodate and make these reasonable adjustments for a neurodiverse creative
1: yeah because there's emotions involved in this and providing that sensitivity as an added extra bit of support that isn't often labelled as support, but it is a type of support when you know that there's someone who's sensitive to your position.
5: If you're a graphic designer, you're working with people. So ultimately, you can be incredibly linear. And the person you're working with is incredibly not linear. So that can lead to unnecessary work uh, stuff to do. You know, our job is to communicate graphically and It's one of the most important things of a designer is then being able to communicate with the people that you're working with. Because you're not only working with clients, you're working with suppliers, you're working with printers, you're working with all sorts of people. So, and that's what I really enjoy about it is working with different people. The job is to be able to successfully work with someone in Bangladesh who is gonna make a banner for you or work with someone at the VNA, who's going to meticulously mount an object and make a caption for you, and it's how do you cope with those two different extremes to get the best out of working with them. I don't really ask for a cover letter. I suppose you asked to show your work. People have sent videos, I just think it's a lot of effort to make a video. Do you know, that's funny work. you
2: say that because for me, I would, I would have, have done it. Way. I would have done it in five minutes. That wouldn't have been an issue for me at all. Writing the cover letter. Really. That is the issue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I know it sounds probably quite ridiculous, but I would have laboured and laboured, oh, right. and laboured over that.
5: I think it's ultimately any any form of communication that you feel comfortable with. That maybe that's actually a great suggestion, isn't it? It's a great recommendation to be able to kind of offer that.
1: Lorna, I think that was great, that conversation, that bit of like dialogue that you had with Fraser about, oh, the cover letter is like the format and you were like, Actually, a video would take me no time at all, contrary to, you know, what a lot of employers out there think and he was like, Oh yeah What that illustrates I think is that yeah, having an open conversation like with a potential employer is always worth doing because you never know what their experience is of what they have been used to before or what they're open to and what they know about and don't know about. Yeah, definitely. Because
2: I guess Fraser is thinking it from his perspective. Yeah, it was nice for me to be able to talk to him about it from my perspective. And I, I think, you know, like going back to Annabelle's interview in uh, where we talked about different methods again... That sparked all those ideas for me. So I didn't even know it was going to help me. I didn't know about that method either. So it was like really great knowledge exchange. I could like talk to Fraser about it. I'm passing on this like knowledge of learning that I've taken from the interview with Annabelle. So I think it's been this really brilliant thread of conversation and knowledge sharing.
1: Yeah, I guess about what we can learn from each other and just through the process of, like say, doing this podcast and hearing and listening to one person's experience, you've been able to try it out, experience it for yourself, and then even talk about it to another person within the podcast even. So yeah, that's great.
5: Confidence is a funny thing, isn't it? You know, it's something that can be incredibly lacking in certain things and incredibly high in certain things. It can also be something that's super attractive as an employer, but also it's super distractive. So it's a really hard one, isn't it? I think the job of a graphic designer is just communicate your client's wishes, which is in a way the easy bit, but it's really understanding what they're trying to tell you <laughs> is the hard <laughs> bit. Or what, if you have issues, and you processing that information.
2: I'm gonna reflect on this from the perspective of, of a designer myself. Yeah, it's such a big part of the job communication and we were also talking a lot about the different communication methods from different angles and different like ways it can be really difficult to navigate actually being open to other ways of communication being patient listening and trying to understand is a really big part of this job it's not just the visual communication like that is a tiny bit of it And yeah, as a designer, there's so much more around like the dialogue with yourself, other creatives, neurotypical or neurodiverse, and your clients who can always articulate what they want visually from you. Any designer could talk around this for a very long time.
1: (laughs) Just hearing what you were saying is really valuable to me because I was just thinking as you were talking about how diverse the platforms are for communication and where design is seen in days like world like you've got online you've got social media you've still got print stuff and they're all speaking to different audiences for different purposes and that added on to the layer of how people process it is even bigger
2: (laughs) that was so interesting talking to Fraser exciting to talk to him a bit about typography as a geeky thing for myself.
1: So our last interviewee is Ali Wilson. She's not only a theatre maker, dramaturg and creative producer, she founded this organisation called Every Brain and they support and platform neurodivergent creativity. The seed of it
6: began in 2019. And it was born out of frustration mostly, I think, as somebody with ADHD and probably also like some characteristics of some other neurodivergences. I found myself coming up against certain barriers to finding work and feeling worthy in the creative industry. And I have some very good friends who work alongside me up here in Manchester, who I felt maybe feeling the same way. And at the time I had been in Manchester for around six or seven years. It's not a massive city, especially, I think the freelance and the theatre world aren't massive. And by that point, I felt like I had grown a network with particular organisations and institutions. And I just felt like maybe I could harness some of my frustration to, to use it in a positive
2: way. It was really great to hear Ali talking about that because I think actually this podcast is a little bit born out of frustration as well. Certainly, when we came together, it was, well, from my perspective, trying to understand my process and never having given it that much time to understand it and trying to, like, you know, work with you to visually represent how we were going to do that. That's quite often the case, isn't it, when you feel you have something to say really good projects seem to come out of that and really good collaborations like finding your people that you align with.
1: Well for us it certainly manifested from our frustration around talking about how we got diagnosed later in life and maybe that we didn't know what our voices were within that area and how it fit into our creative processes so it was really interesting to hear how Ali was processing that too.
6: Somehow, a lot of it is linked to not knowing that I was neurodivergent for a long time. The impact of having ADHD and how that works for me personally. So I I moved up here from Leicester, where I'm from, to go to Salford Uni to do a degree in contemporary theatre making. Mostly because at A-level, I just realised, like, I don't like Shakespeare. So, don't <laughs> so, you know, so really found, I think just found my whole self in Manchester and, and like, on this course and making experimental device performance work now that I have an understanding of like ADHD specifically being able to go to uni you know five days a week and be on my feet and moving around and like moving energy around my body rather than being sat like reading from a script or like the kind of very physical things about devising work makes a lot of sense with how ADHD presents in myself
1: I really liked the way that Ali spoke about this because in myself, I really recognize how once you know that area of yourself, you understand why you need to process different bits of information in different ways or act upon it. For example, Ali spoke about I need to be Doing theatre by getting up and walking around and like feeling it rather than sitting and reading through a script. And I really feel that sometimes I'm in creative team meetings or education team meetings, and I do like talking about the things, but I also like trying out and experimenting little tasters or tests of how those things might look to people and how they might be experienced. And I think that goes hand in hand with why i'm interested in like the sensory connection to this as well
2: yeah relating to what ali said back to the type of work that i do and 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 areas where i struggle i think because like you know as a designer you sit at a desk and you design from a computer and that this does not suit me this is not a space that suits me really well but when i'm doing photography work i feel very much i get very much in flow because i'm not really good at sitting down and I, i i really engage with the whole Performance of it all because I'm, I'm able to move around a space, I'm physically engaging with people. That's why photography is a space where I feel very at home in, and designing a fixed desk can be challenging for me.
6: There is this dangerous habit of assuming that anybody who's coming to you with an access preference, or they might call it an access requirement, that that means oh, you know, we are about to get, like, told off or cancelled or called out or that this requirement is going to be massively expensive in time, money and resources. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Um, adaptations to the working culture, they are, like, sometimes of the same scale as somebody making their chair a bit lower. The scale of these changes is tiny in practice and massive in impact. And I think that's probably the hardest thing to... Cross at first so with every brain. once this team was compiled back in March the first thing that we did was I asked everybody to fill out an access rider and just in case anybody listening doesn't know what that is it's a document where I asked four or five questions and they're questions like how do you prefer to communicate what time of the day do you work best, is there anything that you need to work that you don't have and that document is a kind of formalized channel for somebody to be able to say to me hey like i really don't like it when i get phone calls that i'm not expecting or hey i am best doing zooms in the morning because i get a bit foggy in the afternoon these kind of things and it allows me or the employer or whoever is kind of hosting the project to get an idea of how this person works and particularly about you know What do they need to do really great work or to feel good about working? So what's important there is that the conversation about how to support this person comes from the people that are employing them, rather than expecting the employees to say, hey, by the way, can I ask that I don't have to work on Friday? The responsibility there, I really believe, needs to be on those with the power.
1: This is a really interesting one for me, and I'm really glad that Ali explained exactly what an access rider is Being a freelancer again, that provides a tricky situation in terms of who is responsible, who has the power when you're a freelancer going into lots of different organizations, and how do you navigate around creating an access rider from all those different employers? It's something that I'm still interested in and exploring. For example, I work. In an education setting with an employer, but I also work in a freelance capacity amongst a team of freelancers. So who has the power there when we're all on the same level and trying to kind of consider each other's access requirements and needs to be able to work together effectively. But, yeah, I think it's a great idea to sort of open up the conversation around those simple things that can make a really big impact. I also think
2: it doesn't alienate anyone in this. If you, like, literally roll that, I mean, I've written that they're like provocations, really. It helps everybody to identify and understand how they work and think about what they need, actually. So neurotypical or neurodiverse, like, it gives you that space to really think, actually, these are the best conditions for me to, like, communicate and thrive in no matter what my condition is. And yet it doesn't you know, single out anyone else. oh Hey, neurodiverse person, you need to tell me these things. It's like, yeah. you can do it with everybody and it feels really like we're all in the same space trying to do the same thing.
6: I have to say this, and it might be like, you know, someone be listening might think, oh, this is what everybody says. But I think that there is a very real connection between capitalism, productivity, and what we expect people to be able to do in the workplace. This obsession with being productive Therefore, leads to, of course, hiring people who are the most productive yeah. in a very like white, westernized sense of the word. And that is limiting beyond words. And so going into a business with that phrase at hand isn't always the best way in, especially if they're a business that is built on making money. The route into getting them on my side is often that I have to advocate for these small changes to be made not only for the benefit of those who are neurodivergent, but for their whole
0: workforce. Yes.
6: And that's how I get in. And it's a real shame that I have to convince them, hey, actually, all of you who are neurotypical will also benefit for this to be valid.
2: That's another really good point. Whereas like these changes, these different ways of doing things are going to benefit both neurotypical and neurodiverse people in these workplaces. I can imagine not every neurotypical person, they want to be operating at this level of productivity anyway because there's no balance of self-care also like with everything that goes on in the world there's a lot of difficulty in our headspaces to operate at those optimal levels now and it doesn't leave any room for space for creative thought to come in
1: yeah and i just really appreciate that refreshing angle that ali brought to the conversation about how it's a systemic change that needs to happen if we're talking about capitalism fueling this need for that much productivity, but actually it's backfiring on people in the creative industry if it's overworking them and not actually producing quality. (laughs) So there's something systemic that needs to change to unpack that or break that down and create new ways. I
2: think you can already see that in creativity at the moment because of the level of productivity that I think there is a lot of work that's been churned out. And I think you really notice it now.
1: Yeah, and I definitely think that a lot of us creatives actually felt that during the pandemic as well, because it was like relentless, like, oh, I can just keep on working now that we've found this way to work online and not have to travel anywhere. And like, we can fit more work in that space where we used to travel. But actually that space for travel was actually useful for like brain rest and screen rest and all of those things. That's the end of this episode. And if you wanted to listen to more, we have other sessions where we talk about awareness, education, and diagnosis, or getting creative work when neurodivergent, or exposing creative processes. How neurodiversity interprets communication for audiences. And
2: thanks so much for listening. It was really great to have you along with us. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye.
1: Goodbye.
0: So that's been Square Hole, a series exploring neurodiversity and its connection to the creative industries, created by Lorna Allen and Januk Sarkar. I've been your host, Sazi Clivertcher. If you haven't already, I would encourage you to visit the Square Hole podcast series to listen to the full interviews. Please visit our Instagram account at sqhole and tell us what you think about anything you've heard. We'd love to listen to your perspectives. The Instagram account is also where you can access the full transcripts, show notes, links to resources, and where to find out more about our interviewees for the whole series. Thank you.